All right, guys, welcome to another episode of FedWatch. This is episode 75. Christian is on a much needed uh, holiday break. Uh, he's one of the hardest working guys in Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin content, so it's much, much uh, needed break. But uh, I will be flying solo, and I just have a few updates on the energy crisis in Europe, on Evergrande, and uh, talk about my op-ed real quick that I wrote in, in Bitcoin Magazine. So... Uh, just want to start by saying Merry Christmas to everybody, and let's go with this op-ed. Can I share my screen real quick, guys? Okay, so this uh, the title of this op-ed was The Real Reason Federal Reserve Chair Powell Retired Transitory, and it follows on with uh, an episode we did of FedWatch two weeks ago uh, when we listened to all those clips. It was the first live stream that we did. Um, and it, it was really interesting, but there was so much more to say about it. So I just wrote a real in-depth article and I got some constructive feedback about, uh, oh, I didn't even mention Bitcoin in here. Well, so I wanted to go through that and explain how Bitcoin is in here, even though I don't say the term Bitcoin. So uh, if you scroll down to the second quote of Powell, where he was asked about why are interest rates so low and what does he think is uh, interest rates are going to do over the next 12 months, he says that. Interest, low interest rates are due to a series of long-running global forces that are leading to lower sustained interest rates. And then he asks rhetorically, like, how long will they last? Well, it's very hard to say, he says. Um, I dive into that more deeply in the next few paragraphs, but I, I finish by answering his question. How long will these long-running um, forces, global forces, uh, that are affecting interest rates how long will they last? And I say, well, until we replace the money. And of course, I'm talking about Bitcoin here. So um, that is how I worked Bitcoin in to this article that Bit for this uh, for the global economy to get over this period of stagnation, low interest rates, lo relatively low inflation until very recently, um, you know, we're going to have to change the money. So uh, that's what I wanted to say about that. Okay, let's get into the energy crisis in Europe. If you have been listening to the financial press at all over the last couple of weeks, this has been uh, very, uh, a very hot topic out there. So I wanted to look at some of the charts and break down some of the things that I'm seeing. So first thing I wanna do is bring up the futures chart for Europe. And you can see it's just going parabolic at this point. Um, a few things I wanted to point out is Back in September of 2018, we had a top back here, and then it slowly went down. And this is when I and other macro analysts are saying that the real kind of uh, the economy turned over. So prior to that, we had uh, synchronized growth. Global synchronized growth is the, the term they use, the meme they use to try to pump this up here. But that turned over in 2018. And... Uh, before it was said and done, we had the corona crash down at the bottom, and that is a lot of demand destruction. Okay, you, your producers can't continue to produce at the same rate if their their uh, paycheck or their profits get cut from thirty down to three. So that's a significant thing. And then we see a recoil up here. Uh, that that's what this is. And if I take the log scale off, uh, you see how crazy it truly is uh, on a natural scale here. Um, all-time record highs, and it looks very, very dire in Europe, actually. Uh, I think this could have massive ripple effects. Let's continue on with a map of um, European electricity prices. This is from Twitter. 
Javier Blas, I think you pronounce his name. But this, I thought this was really good because it, it shows a selection of countries um, in Europe and the average electricity cost per megawatt hour. All of them are over 300 except for Poland, which is at 160. But the natural or the long-term average is about 30, between 25 and 50 euros per megawatt hour. So you can see this is a 10x increase over the normal. And I'm just thinking um, where I'm at in Florida, say my average monthly electricity bill is between 100 and 200 dollars, and then you want to go 10x on that. So 1,000 to 2,000 dollars. That that massively affects everybody's disposable income. And if people are spending that on electricity, they're not going to be able to spend it elsewhere. And so that has a lot of um, knock-on effects, second, third order effects. Uh, the next thing I wanted to share was a really good video that sums this up. And again, I'm going to link to all this in the show notes. Um, there's so much to say about this that, I, you know, you can't fit it into a two hour long podcast, but uh, Alex Mercolis has a really great YouTube channel and his most recent video is on the European gas prices. And he focuses a lot on the uh, second order effects. And his big thing is on fertilizer. So let's jump over here to this next story is uh, from the independent commodity intelligence services. And this is just a topic page. So they link a lot of different articles that they have, a lot of different podcasts and charts and, and everything. Um, but I just wanted to read a few things here off the top of this page. Soaring natural gas prices have prompted shutdowns of fertilizer plants and have wide ranging implications, not only for industry, but for farmers and global food supply. European gas prices have skyrocketed to record highs on multi-year low storage levels and supply concerns, with Asia uh, LNG prices following suit. Natural gas is a key feedstock for making nitrogen fertilizers such as ammonia, urea, and nitrates. Um, I think this is very important uh, to consider that uh, over the horizon, not only do we have the ripple effects of the uh, energy prices and people not being able to heat their homes and maybe not being able to buy imports and exports or uh, the, the whole economic um, engine is shutting down, but it could affect actual food supplies and lead to uh, not worldwide famine, but very localized famine. And I, I think this is important to think about as we are kind of decoupled. The U.S. is pulling back and decoupling from the world a little bit. And Europe is having all these issues with um, uh, their energy prices. But also right on their border, they have Russia massing troops on the border with Ukraine. And there's all those types of fights going on there. Um, I also wanted to bring in a talk about Turkey because Turkey is also on the border of Europe. And this was, um, oh, let me share my screen one more time. This was a, another YouTube channel that I found, uh, Patrick Boyle, that has a really, really good breakdown of what's going on exactly in Turkey. It looks like what Erdogan is doing is he's trying to weaken the currency to have more um, competitive exports. And that's a bad combination when you add it to the rising price of electricity and energy in Europe, because who are they going to want to export to? They're going to want to export to Europe. Well, Europe can't buy right now. So this is gonna, I think this is one reason why 
um, there is massive pressure on the uh, Turkish lira over the last, I think it really accelerated about two or three weeks ago. Um, and they, they keep having new updates, trying to do new schemes, drop the interest rate, hike the interest rate. Now the, the latest is that Erdogan is going to uh, in, protect all savings accounts from inflation. And so that's why we saw that big drop in the lira yesterday. Let me, I'll pull that up, that chart up. If I can find it here. Okay. So we saw the, the big drop this week in the lira. That's when uh, he said he was going to inflation protect all the savings accounts. But their, their official inflation rate's 20% or 25%. But as you can see here, uh, just this year, it's gone from about 7 all the way up to um, 18 at the top. So, I mean, the official rate is not going to protect them against the ravages of inflation. They're still going to be losing 50% of the value of their currency. So, um, but Turkey has a very large military. They are trying to export to Europe. Um, the Black Sea region already has heightened military pressures with Russia and Ukraine. And I can see that this is going to have uh, possibly continue to ratchet up the maybe Erdogan wants to threaten somebody with with their military if, if you're unpopular in your country you can rally support by starting a conflict somewhere so um, I think this is uh, really bad news for the euro really bad news for Europe in general all right let's go to the next one the next story is oh well this this also the next thing i wanted to share was something interesting about the asian uh and european back and forth with energy prices so if you go back a couple months you'll remember that uh, the ccp came out and said buy energy at any cost and they were forward thinking back then because they bought energy right before obviously this big bidding war going on right now um and they're getting deliveries they're getting deliveries. And if you take a look at this map, which I thought was really interesting, um, these boats are these big ships carrying this liquefied natural gas. They're going towards Asia, uh, but someone in Europe outbids them and they turn around and go right back to Europe. Uh, so this is a bit major bidding war with these vessels on the ocean trying to deliver their gas somewhere. Uh, but it's just a back and forth. And we'll, we'll see this continue on for the next couple months. And again, if they're spending this money on energy, where are they not spending it? They might not be spending it on paying down their debts, you know, paying their coupons for all their um, uh, company bonds that are out there. Maybe there's gonna be some defaults. We'll, we'll have to see how this plays out. Hey Ansel, I'm sorry yep. to interrupt you. Uh, yep. real, real quick, we have a question from our Twitch audience, Open Go. Water Swim. Who's one of our one of our favorite uh, recurring uh, you know watchers of the show? He asked, "How did you get into reading, learning, and researching all of this?" Um, I wanted to make the best investment decision, so I started at I got an economics degree uh, in college, a mainstream economics degree. Then I got into Austrian school, uh, got really into sound money, started investing in gold and then found Bitcoin and of course have started investing in Bitcoin. So um, it's just in my wheelhouse of currencies, macro, and I think to understand currencies and to understand this stuff and trade and all that, 
you have to dive into this type of these the weeds of finding about ships delivering natural gas i i don't know it's just a natural progression for me love it love it thanks sorry to uh, divert your <laughs> podcast no that's great that's great i'm, I'm trying to uh fly solo here and uh, have a bunch of links and a bunch of things for people to go out and read on their own. I think it's very important uh, to not trust the experts, right? Don't trust the people that you hear out there. Uh, go out and learn on your own. We have the internet and you can do your own research. Uh, I think that's that's very important. So um, anyway, sometimes I get lost in what uh, website I'm on and what I'm sharing, but okay, let's uh, share screen again. And let's go into Evergrande. Let's talk about what's happening over there in China. So uh, the S&P rating agency, they have downgraded Evergrande to default status. So pretty much the lowest that you can go. And that's really bad because it affects the, um, the interest rate on everything. So if you have to borrow more money in the future, you're you know, your interest rate is going to be affected by this, this crappy rating. Um, and so they don't want to be complete in default status, but anyway, S and P downgraded them. And I'll just read a little blip here. So the poster child of China's property crisis, China Evergrande group was officially declared in default by credit rating agency S and P global on Friday after the sprawling firm missed a bond payment earlier this month. Quote, we assess that, China Evergrande Group and its offshore financing arm, Tianjin Holding Limited, have failed to make coupon payments for their outstanding US dollar senior notes, S&P said in a statement. Then they followed on to add that uh, Evergrande said, hey, we don't wanna be in default status. Put us in selective default status because we haven't defaulted on everything yet. So they then they did, I guess this is kind of an upgrade. So they took them all the way down to the bottom and then they put them up one peg to selective default. But yeah, um, Evergrande is in big trouble. Following on from that, we see that the local governments are starting to seize Evergrande property. So this is another headline. Chinese city takes back two plots of land from Evergrande. The Chinese city of Chengdu has taken back two plots of land from China Evergrande Group in the latest move by authorities to seize assets from the cash-strapped property developer. The land planning authority in the southwestern city said it was taking control of the plots, totaling over 300,000 square meters, as Evergrande had not developed them after holding them for over a decade. Now, why is that important? So this company that the largest developer or second largest de uh, property developer in China can't make its payments, but these cities are going to start seizing their property. Evergrande needs that to sell to make their bond payments, right? So they, how are they ever going to pay off any of their debts if they keep getting their assets seized by these governments? So uh, we've reported on this for a long time. Uh, it just seems like this is a ball rolling downhill over there and it's picking up speed, more and more speed. Um, and China is facing some, uh, a, a big time credit bubble bursting, I think over the next, um, you know, year, they're going to have pro problems growing out of this. They have uh, up or downgraded their growth from 2020, I think down to 2% or like 2.2%. And their 2021 GDP growth is going to be roughly the same. And that's the lowest ever since, uh, you know, the, the CCP took over. So this is a, a pretty dire situation over there in China. 
Uh, and that's all I got, guys. Do, do we have any more questions from the audience that I can um, answer? No questions at this time. Anything we want to prompt them with? Anything we want to ask the audience? Are you guys following this Evergrande stuff? Do you guys follow international politics and trade? <laughs> I'm curious. We'll have to check back in with them. Well, let me go a little bit deeper into that op-ed and, and kind of what we do here on FedWatch. So um, I'm, I came up, like I said, through the gold bug route into being a Bitcoiner. And I was really big into inflation that the US dollar was going to inflate away that currencies only last for a hundred years and the time of the dollar is up and, and that's it. But um, looking at the data and, and questioning my assumptions over the last several years, I've become more in the deflationist camp. I don't think that we can get out of a debt problem by adding more debt, right? It, once, once you do that, um, you are increasing the debt burden and you're just increasing the overhang in the economy and it can't grow. Uh, it just stagnates and dies. You can't get inflation out of that. Um, so how do you get out of this perpetual stagnation and, um, uh, you know, a problem of too much debt is you have to change the money. Uh, if right now we're in a hundred percent credit-based money system, I don't even consider it fiat, uh, because yes, it is legal tender, but, uh, there is a backing to every dollar out there and that's debt. Every dollar is a dollar of debt. And so if you, a lot of times the Austrians and sound money people, they'll say, oh, you need to let people default to flush that out of the system, right? Uh, flush out the bad debts and then let uh, a thousand flowers bloom after that. But the problem is that everything is debt. Everything's, you know, bad debt. So if you let everything crash, we actually go down to roughly zero money supply because there's nothing else backing the currency like uh, gold or Bitcoin. Um, that's the problem with the form of money we have right now and why they cannot let this uh, cascade of defaults to happen. They must stop it. Uh, we got a taste of that, like I said, in um, 2020 with the coronavirus and the partial shutdown of the economy. Uh, that is just a small taste of what it would be if we actually let everything go, uh, everything default to zero. When you have a sound money, the credit bubble can pop and you still have that base layer of money that you can use in the economy. But if you're on a 100% credit-based system, you can't. So wh why is Bitcoin the only way out of this problem? Because uh, Bitcoin will take its tentacles into the financial system. And as it grows to a $10 trillion, $20 trillion uh, asset, I think once it gets to about $50 trillion, is when the... 100 trillion of bad debt can actually default and we can be caught by Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is the only way out by getting in there and becoming this asset that people can use as money when it all collapses. But I don't think that it's going to be an inflationary thing. It's got to be deflationary because you cannot add debt to get out of a debt problem. Awesome. I uh, We did get a couple questions for you. So the first right. one comes from our awesome Twitch audience as well. What convinced you to switch to Austrian economics? And I assume they're asking, you know, what made you break that framework, that fiat Keynesian framework that we all grew up with and to start yeah. researching Austrian economics? 
Um, my parents were Ron Paul people. And so they kind of, my parents voted for Ron Paul back in the eighties. Uh, and so it was something that I've always had there in my life. I re read, uh, all the Ayn Rand stuff. I read all the Murray Rothbard stuff and I was just convinced. So I went down the rabbit hole of sound money and started investing in gold and silver roughly around the year 2000. I, I graduated high school in 99. So I'm getting on the older end of Bitcoiners, but, uh, yeah, that's uh, I've been was investing in gold since then, and then when I found Bitcoin, um, I started investing in Bitcoin. Awesome. I have uh, let's see our next question from Twitch. Uh, this is from Real King Diversity asks, "What are your thoughts on underground Bitcoin mining in China?" So, as in like the Chinese taking obviously their hash rate has become illegal. So all the mining that occurs there is is like black market illicit mining. I believe that would be the framework. Well, if, if there is some of that, um, I haven't seen any specific, uh, you know, investigative reports on it. But if there is some of that, it's not showing up in the metrics like Cambridge does a um, mm -hmm. mining metric report and they aren't showing anything coming out of China or at least nothing uh significant to even give them one percent but i could see there's some underground mining there's always going to be that perhaps on the border um, there is some stories out of kazakhstan so a lot of those miners fled over to central asia mm -hmm. uh, and they thought oh kazakhstan they're they have cheap power this is going to be a good place well they have been met with some unfriendly regulation very recently they are pre pretty much putting a kibosh on Bitcoin mining because they are also really? in some energy pinch. So the first, I think they cut back the amount of hours that the miners could be turned on. And then they uh, have, I think made it not illegal, but they've stopped Bitcoin mining at least for the majority in Kazakhstan right now. That's, that's too bad to hear. I do try to keep up with the Cambridge uh, data on that. And they, uh, the last I checked Kazakhstan was actually had the second lion's share of the hash power in the world. They were the second largest uh, hash rate coming out of Kazakhstan. Is that no longer the case? Have they updated that at all? Well, this is just in the last like two weeks, I believe. I wrote about it this last okay. week on my newsletter, so it's pretty fresh news. Uh, I don't know. I My take on it is I'm very bullish on North American mining. And so all of these people that fled out of China, some of them came to North America, but some of them went to Central Asia. And I bet those people in Central Asia are just kicking themselves right now because they wish they would have this friendly Texas mining environment, which uh, we enjoy here in the United States. But um, yeah, it's it's fresh news. Yeah, uh, love it. I think that's we had one more question. It was uh, what factors would catalyze it would yeah it would catalyze a decoupling between legacy markets and bitcoin i'm not sure exactly what uh they mean by decoupling but does that question mean anything to you what do you what do you think about that well yeah when i hear that question i think of uh, like a parallel system so bitcoin is supposed to be well i think it's building a parallel system uh, i think bitcoin will actually replace some of the things like collateral use in repo transactions um, again, it was going to work its tentacles in there as pristine collateral, because when you have the Bitcoin, you have the asset. And that's very attractive, especially when you're worried about counterparty risk. So one of the things you might have heard about repo and the plumbing of the financial system, this is like the shadow banking system. And um, the problem is in these financial crises, 
people lose confidence in the counterparty. So they're doing these repo transactions and one day it's all fine. But then one of the members in that um, dance that's going on in the repo market, one of those members gets impaired, whether they can't make a payment or you know some bad news in the financial press comes out about one of those members of that repo dance going on. And now nobody wants to trade with anybody. It just freezes up overnight. So counterparty risk is very important, uh, very deadly in the plumbing of the system, but Bitcoin doesn't have counterparty risk. It's very similar to gold, except obviously Bitcoin can be sent anywhere in the world in 10 minutes. Uh, so these large billion dollar contracts, you know, whatever the fee is for Bitcoin, if even if it gets up to $20, $50 fee to send a billion dollars, that, that's nothing. So I think Bitcoin will, uh, one of the first places it's going to go with its tentacles is into the repo market as pristine collateral. All right. We love it. There you have it, folks. That's the Fed watch for you. Thank you, Ansel. We'll see you next week, next uh, Tuesday, I think. You guys have the holidays off. You coming next Tuesday? Oh, you're on mute there. I might take that week off and come back in two weeks. Yes, sir. Okay, well, we'll see you soon and, and looking forward regardless. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks, guys. Merry Christmas.